You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. Robert Wild, professor of reproductive endocrinology and medicine and clinical epidemiology at the Oklahoma University Health Sciences Center in Oklahoma City. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Clinical Lipidology and is a certified menopause practitioner, part of the North American Menopause Society. Dr. Wild, welcome to the show. Well, good to be here. My first question, I guess, is how strong is the relationship between patients with polycystic ovary disease and metabolic syndrome? Do they go hand in hand? Well, they seem to be entwined. I think polycystic ovary syndrome seems to be one of the largest risk factors for metabolic syndrome. We're now learning in teenagers reproductive age women and certainly at the time of the menopause. So what are you what are you doing differently with your younger polycystic patients these days than you did maybe five, ten years ago? Well, I think we're identifying the risk factors early. I think we have many more choices from a prevention point of view. I think we know how to understand their abnormal lipid physiology better. We have better techniques to assess what their risk really is. And I think we are more careful to implement sort of a broader global approach for prevention than we used to be. And when you're treating them, let's take somebody who's perhaps not having a baby yet, but in their early 20s and they have polycystic disease and you've identified they've got metabolic syndrome also, are you careful to put them on a statin? Yeah, we have to be awfully cautious about what we know about metabolic syndrome and then apply that in terms of treatment strategies, and then apply that to a reproductive age female who's trying to get pregnant. Statins are contraindicated in pregnancy, and so we have to start to work on planning to understand if a person wants to try to get a handle on some of these things before she gets pregnant, and then be careful that she doesn't, and then plan it appropriately. Or, depending on her age limit and time from a fertility factor point of view, we have to look to alternative treatment strategies. I know that some people have have questioned whether or not the risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease with metabolic syndrome is greater than the sum of its parts. Where Where do you fall on that? There's a lot of controversy about that, and I think that sort of misses the advantage of understanding about the metabolic syndrome. To me, the real advantage is is that if we understand that part of our vital signs should be a waste measurement, we're better off at getting our patients in to understand what's happening to them. So if we argue about the sum of the parts, it turns out that if you have all the criteria, there's geometric effect on cardiovascular risk rather than linear. And so I think the real strength is, is if we understand it exists, we understand how to screen for it, we can help people address what to do about it. So it's a matter of getting people into the system that I think is the real strength. Well, once you use the waist size, are you still missing anybody if you're using plain old Framingham risk? Well, the classic Framingham risk is described for Caucasian women. And we now know that we have, using international definitions and IGF definitions, different cutoffs for different races. And we're alert to the fact that Southeast Asians, for example, that cutoff line is about 31 and a half, 32 inches as opposed to 35 for a Caucasian woman. And so we know that certain racial groups are at greater risk. We know Hispanic, American Indian combination racial groups are at risk. We know that Southeast Asians are at risk. We know that African Americans are relatively lower risk, but still we have to pay attention to 
because everybody's at risk of the global epidemic for obesity that we're all trying to face. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Robert Wild, Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology and Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at the Oklahoma University Health Sciences Center. We're talking about metabolic syndrome and like to move it ahead towards patients in menopause and the metabolic syndrome. What do we know now that we didn't know a few years ago? I think we have a better handle on the prevalence. We know that we've been able to watch people transition through the menopause and understand that the the central obesity is much more prevalent even beginning a couple of years before the last menstrual period. It increases over time and I think we have better estimates through NHANES data and other data that it affects 40 to 50 percent of menopausal women. There are about 50 million people in the United States with this problem. It's a huge public health issue. And I think as all people practice primary care for, for women, they should be alert to the fact that they, a lot can be done to impact it. Do you think it's, it's almost too late when we decide to focus on these women when they're menopausal, when, when the disease process really starts when they're 18, 19, 20? Well, from a public health point of view and from understanding that even determinants, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, in childhood, adolescence, all those are important. On the other hand, I would argue it's never too late. We've been able to, for instance, with classic LDL targets, a person post-MI, we now know that if we keep their LDL extremely low, we can reduce their mortality from cardiovascular disease to less than from other potential causes. So I would argue that never too late, and we know much more about how to prevent it. So I'd say we take the task at hand and do what we can do to to impact it. Well, let's continue with that patient you just brought up post-MI, and we've succeeded in getting their LDL to goal with a statin or a statin in combination of other things. Do you then turn your eyes towards other targets, such as the non-HDL? Yes. We now know the importance of residual risk when an LDL is targeted. We're much more alert to how triglyceride atherogenicity occurs, the metabolism of triglycerides in conjunction with low HDL. We're alert to being able to understand about small LDL particles and how those need to be under control. And we have lots of ways in order to keep them under control. We can figure out better the appropriate targets for what's normal. In your practice, do you use advanced lipid testing? I do. Which one do you like, VAP, Berkeley, or NMR? Well, I think each has their advantages, strengths, and weaknesses, and we have to go a bit with what our insurance plans offer. On the other hand, there are important point as we understand goals and targets and work with it. I like, actually, personally, NMR. I can get more information with it. And let's say using NMR and you've, get, you've gotten their particle number down, to, let's say, less than a 1,000. Are you then happy, or what do you go after next? I'm happy. Okay, so a 1,000 your magic number. I think thousands a magic number. On the other hand, you know, not everybody has advanced lipid testing available, and so it's important to understand how total and HDL cholesterol can be used, ApoB can be used mm-hmm. as surrogate markers for the same target. What would you say is a, a similar number to that 1,000 in terms of an ApoB? A 90. So if you're using a VAP, they, they've now included an ApoB, and you'll you'll get that. And then how do you think that a, if you do a non-HDL calculation that you're kind of getting close to an ApoB? You're getting close. 
I think it's a surrogate, and I think it's still a useful tool in setting. You know, it's impossible to use particle measurements as a screening tool, and I think it's important to understand what we have available and how to use it, and then ultimately how to fine-tune what we're after. So I reserve the particle testing for fine-tuning. In the situation you brought up, where LDL is a target, we've already probably got somebody into the system. They're being treated, and then the question is, how are they fine-tuned? In that setting, I think it's useful. So let's continue with with the fine-tuning. In the post-enhanced era which we're in, has your practice changed a little bit in terms of what you're adding next to, let's say, get particle number down? The important thing is to understand the targets. Uh, Enhanced, as you know, is a very controversial and There are a lot of trials that are coming down the pike now, and, and we're in an age where we have, what, four to six quality trials looking at combination treatment strategies to begin to answer some of those questions. So I, I think that's certainly not the last word. How are you using metformin these days in your polycystic patients? Is that kind of first-line treatment? From a metabolic point of view, we shouldn't ignore lifestyle issues and all the enhancements that go with that. And that includes, from a global risk reduction strategy, education for appropriate exercise, education for appropriate diet input in its global way. I mean, I spend lots of time addressing the importance of watching saturated fats omega fatty acids, and being careful to avoid simple sugars and so forth. So I think what we're doing is we're educating people that this is a chronic disease prevention issue. And so I'm a little careful to avoid a quick jump Mm -hmm. to a quick fix with metformin. On the other hand, as you know, metformin in certain populations has an ovulation induction capability, and it appears to work in our hands much better when the BMI is around 35. So we try to get people down to that before we address it, depending on the goal. And, of course, with ovulation induction questions, we have multiple agents available now. On the other hand, for metabolic syndrome patients or patients who are already diabetic or pre-diabetic, I think metformin is a very good drug, provided there's no renal disease to worry about. So, yes, it's frequently used, depending on the setting, depending on the goal. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Robert Wild, Professor of Reproductive Endocrinology and Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at the Oklahoma University Health Sciences Center. Back to the topic of triglycerides. There have been a flurry of articles about looking at non-fasting triglycerides instead of fasting triglycerides. And We all know that that number can be so affected by, you know, something you ate three days ago. Mm -hmm. It's so variable. Right. So, you know, it's not reality to do a fasting triglyceride because who lives in a fasting state anymore? Well, as you know, there's been some recent epidemiological evidence looking at non-fasting triglycerides. And so the issue is, is what's going on? I think the issue is, is how well do we clear our triglycerides? And we know what happens normally and, and we know that... As it's delayed, it's atherogenic. We do glucose tolerance tests. Why don't we do the same with a postprandial triglyceride test? Not a bad idea, but we need to, of course, standardize it. And so much more work we need to have done now. And your point is very well taken. That's how well we clear them. It's crucial how the systems are overwhelmed that we can't handle it anymore, basically. And I think that's what you're getting at. I think it's an important element of what we're dealing with here. Another question I'm thinking of is, how are you addressing your patients' HDLs in terms of how do you know whether or not their HDL is actually functioning well? 
Well, it's a tough question and a good one, and there's increasing evidence that it's not just the amount of HDL that's important, it's exactly how it functions. And the fact is we don't have a good handle yet on all the elements of that. We know about its relation to coagulation. We know about its reverse cholesterol transport association. We know about it, how it affects even the fibrinolytic system. On the other hand, we do know from epidemiological studies, we don't have a lot of head-to-head comparisons of how changes happen with different modalities, but we do know how changes happen with classic modalities. And we can trace now when HDL cholesterol goes up for whatever the intervention, that it does impact events. That being said, much more needs to be done to answer the tricky question that you brought up. Well, on that note, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Robert Wild, for joining us today on Lipid Luminations. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.